Welcome to episode 446 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a wonderful conversation with regular contributor from his office in Denver, Colorado, environmental law attorney, professor, and the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, Michael R. Harris. And we talk with Michael about barred owls being shot to save spotted owls, the pendulum swinging, elephants, happy the elephant in particular, ivory, turkeys during Thanksgiving or not, and uh, just a general sentiment about personhood, among other things. A grand conversation with Michael R. Harris this go-round. We also have an EW essay titled Queer, and we share an excerpt from an article published in the 2021 September 6th edition of The New Yorker magazine by Dana Goodyear, titled Grub, Eating Bugs to Save the Planet. And we have a poem called French Farm. Of course, all of this will be imbued, infused, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 446 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
The morning dark with a spark outside the window in the east, through the trees and weeds and cottontails, species of spotted owls. The sun starts to peek through, despite me and you, us and them, the eagle or the hen, the smokestack and pig pen. Happy the elephant in the Bronx, New York, is not free. Does he, she, they know the way back to Thailand from where she had originally come against her will? An enslaved immigrant unfulfilled. And perhaps happy could be rescued if our judges believe he is a being with personhood, as the legal term goes for those that our anthropocentric outlook views worthy of autonomy. But how, now, when we have not allowed for a more natural state and fate for this big creature? Thanks we give for our stead, quietly overlooking the psychological angst and bloodshed that is our history, that is our every day. Compassion, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, secession, a brave new world, same as the old new world, struggling to make sense of why we have chosen the mores that protect us from a truer sense of responsibility. My little man, you sweet teacup girlfriend, this is all, as they say, a flash in the pan. Gobble, gobble, and ho, ho, ho. Which way do we go from here? With truer love and without selfish fear. Can we get it straight and clear? We are all so very queer.
Michael R. Harris. Is that you? You got me. Excellent. All, all the way out there in Denver, Colorado, from his office, we're talking to environmental law attorney, professor, and director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, a regular contributor for us, for Troubadours and Rock On Tours, for quite some time. It's great to have you on again, Michael. How's it going? It's going well, about as, as good as I can possibly uh, be uh, right now. It just uh, hasn't been one of those weeks that everything uh, <laughs> everything um, smoothly sails. It's been just sort of the opposite, unfortunately. I, ah. I hear you. I hear you. And, and that makes me even more thankful that you have uh, set aside some time to be on the program Um and we're coming on Thanksgiving, too, you know, here uh, in the United States of America. A big holiday for uh, many of us. Not all of us. Some of us don't recognize it. Uh, I have a, another regular contributor, Little Bear uh, Deerfoot. He doesn't really recognize Thanksgiving, and you can maybe imagine why. Um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, we can talk about turkeys maybe in a bit. Being, uh, uh, I believe, a vegan and also an advocate for the rights of other animals, other sentient beings, what you think about that. But first, I think you want to talk a bit about owls in the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, that's a great place to start. I'm going to have to rely upon you a little more than normal to push me along on the agenda this week um, yeah. for, for, for the affirmation mentioned reasons that uh, I'm operating in somewhat of a odd state of fog and <laughs> craziness this week yeah it's, it's, it's you know it's 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 one of those weeks where you feel like the universe is conspiring against you and you have to just try to keep your head afloat until you could break through to the other side but um i totally get it believe me i you know <laughs> I, I i'm not i'm not like a, a subscriber to any religion per se but when i get a uh, you know all full of myself and think that I'm so important and when things aren't going right, I do yell at the universe. You know, why are you, why, what the heck? Why, you know, why did this faucet break when I'm trying to wash the dishes and I have to get to this appointment universe? Yeah, I know. Well, you let a little, it's like you, if you uh, let a little bit of that creep into you, you know, it's like it can take a hold of you for sure. And it just, uh, it just winds up uh, being a struggle to get back onto the balance. You know, as uh, as the Tai Chi instructor that I know says, right, I mean, you know, you get the pendulum swings too far to the left, it's going to swing back to the right before it settles down in the center again. And you get, you just get caught up in that energy for a little while before you're calm and balanced again. I love it. I love that you just brought up Tai Chi. Excellent. Yeah. Well, hey, so no, Bart Owls. Um, We've talked about the owls many times, uh, I think, over the course of the last many years because it's one of Friends of Animals' most, um, you know, um, longstanding cases and projects. In fact, we boy, we started this program in 2013, and we were doing barred owl litigation since 20, 2014, the year after. And um, just as a refresher, um, barred owls are native to the East Coast, and they – have migrated uh, over the last quarter, half century maybe, to the West Coast where they are outcompeting some of the northern spotted owls. And the spotted owls have been suffering from um, habitat um, loss due to 
forced um, um, logging in the old growth forests for just as long over the last 30, 40 years. And so it's just a real toxic mix, a terrible mix of, uh, of one species, the spotted owl that's already struggling because of human activity, removing all of the old growth forests. And then uh, a sort of a, a more aggressive um, competitor shows up um, that makes life even more difficult. It makes finding nesting sites more difficult, foraging for food more difficult. And, and so um, we uh, unfortunately have lost track of the fact that spotted owls are probably going to uh, face extinction because of our efforts and um, just want to focus on the barred owls as the problem. And so some of your listeners may know that we've been fighting this plan to, uh, it's sort of called an experiment to remove these barred owls from the spotted owl habitat. By shooting them, right? By shooting them, yeah. Removal is a nice word, right? I mean, we're not saying, hey, come here, barred owl, we're going to take you somewhere nicer. Um <laughs> No, they're calling them. They're you know they're they're using their own their own uh, hoots to um, to attract them, like a, like they're being attracted to a mate, and then when they show up, they get shot with a shotgun. And um, yeah, the the twist on it is that the the experiment has been going on now for for about four years, and uh, it's wrapping up. We were unsuccessful in our original court case, although we actually are going to be arguing one next week. Um, to try to try to prevent some of the other portions of it, but the um, who are you arguing? Are you are you arguing uh, against the actions of of the USFWS, the United States uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, or uh, I think that's who it is, right? Or uh, maybe uh, I'm wrong. Yeah, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was the entity that proposed the experiment and has been actually carrying out the removal, the shooting of these uh, barred owls. And so we've been challenging them in the courtroom for many years now over this. And um, what happened this spring was they they went ahead and issued their preliminary findings on the experiment. And I don't really think it's shocking to realize that if barred owls are competing with spotted owls, that shooting them could be beneficial to the spotted owls. So that's the conclusions they reached. I don't think it was ever really in dispute that that's true. I think it's more what are the moral grounds for doing this and what are we doing here playing the the decider on who gets to use the habitat and who doesn't, who, you know, are we playing God, right? Right. And, and a lot of people would say maybe that you're supporting friends of animals. You're supporting the bully owl, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you can, um, the spotted can... owl has always been looked at as, you know, like you said, they're threatened, uh, officially they're, they're considered a threatened species, right? Um, they, they could be actually defined even the United States fish and wildlife service based on the article you shared with me, uh, as endangered. They're at that level now. So everybody wants to protect the spotted owl. The, one of the main problems besides climate change and, uh, you know, all the habitat through the timber industry as well, that's being taken away. Uh, is is harming and threatening the the uh, spotted owl. So you know we're trying to protect them, and and the barred owl comes in and from the east coast, 
uh, it's not their normal habitat. I, well, we don't know how they got there either. I've, I've come to realize, based again on the literature you shared with me, how they got from the east to the west. But nonetheless, they're there, and now you know they're th- adding to the threat of the spotted owl going extinct. And, and you're you're protecting them, the barred owl. They're you know the bully, the problem. Well, I congratulate you first. You got a really great memory of the entire the, the entire um, barred owl spotted owl situation, but. I, you're right in that perspective, but I always find it funny, of course, to hear anyone put uh, human um, tags, human um, uh, how we would describe actions between humans onto other animals. Like uh, when I think of bullying, I think of it as a, a, an intentional act, uh, uh, an act that's, uh, that someone makes uh, either consciously or subconsciously to treat another person, right? That we have those abilities. We can... We can um, we have more empathy as well as uh, as quite honestly uh, more of the ability to to, um, to 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 feel hatred or anger towards another uh, human being and I'm not sure if that's how I think these animals see it I don't think one one owl is intentionally choosing to pick on another owl it's funny right because on the other hand we spend a lot of times praising the theory of evolution and fitness and survival of the fitness and all of that and and in a way our planet wouldn't look like it was today if if we didn't have evolution occurring these these species um have been put into a situation now where they need to figure out either coexisting or evolving and what right do we have uh then to just and i and the fish and wildlife service does this as well and it really quite frankly irks me you know one is a predator species one is an invasive species one is a bully you can't you can't prescribe those terms to animals. Um, and so it's only a way for us to make rationalize our decision to play God in this situation or to play decider, if you want to look at it that way, if God makes you feel uncomfortable as a way of looking at it, right? Right. It makes us feel better when we could say, well, the barred owl's the bully, it's invasive. We have to do something about it, huh? Really? We've been the the you know nature has been dealing with conflicts and finding resolutions to create life longer than we've been around, and it's going to happen over and over again. Now the problem is we're exasperating these situations and creating more of them by the way we're changing the climate so quickly by the way we're changing the habitat so quickly, forcing these animals to deal with these sort of uh, evolutionary issues sooner and maybe more often than maybe would occur in the natural world. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, well said. Well said, Michael R. Harris. So you're trying to give the barred owl a fair shake, in this whole situation, you look at it as perhaps evolution, survival of the fittest. They they migrated from the east, and I, I get what you're saying. Why are they invasive? You know, just because they migrated, they moved. You know, I guess you can argue. Then let's go back to humans. Well, the Europeans come into this continent. We're an invasive species, aren't we? Well, we are, <laughs> and 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 you know, and there are there are situations where that word may be properly used, right? where you take a species and it doesn't belong and we move it and put it in a different place and create this 
I think that's different. But I look at it, I t I'll spin your uh, example around. Uh, we weren't wanted here. The Native Americans have every right in the world to continue to um, uh, feel anger and exasperation over our, you know, showing up here and acting as if we discovered this place, right? Mm -hmm. But well, this is different. This is about thinking that the United States is, you know, also a melting pot, that immigration is welcome. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't bring people in, and, and we, we see this as well, and then force them to become different people. I think, you know, what we got to look at with barred owls and spotted owls is it's not really us deciding either whether we believe barred owls or spotted owls are appropriate. It's dealing with the situation. It's dealing with a, a mixture of two different subspecies and saying it's not our place to decide what happens. We don't know what's going to happen. Spotted owls may just remain in smaller populations. They may evolve to become better at finding habitat, finding nesting sites. The barred owls may just simply push them aside and spotted owls won't exist. Maybe the two interbreed and we have a new species of owl. None of this is anything friends of animals, our supporters desire or want. But what we don't want to do is decide what's going to happen for them. It's just not our role. When other folks come into this country and if they want to assimilate, that's great. But I think we would want to pride ourselves on the diversity also that, you know, immigration brings. And those who don't, I feel, you know, I think that's a problem. And so, you know, I think the whole notion of immigration, barred owls, of course, get gets mixed up and lost because humans have the ability to to decide where they want to go and, and, and make choices. And, and there are, you know, different types of pressures on why immigration occurs than with animals. There's just a different situation. But if you're going to use those examples, I think that there are, um, you know, there are other ways to look at both. Excellent. Excellent response. It's no wonder you're at the top of your profession. Michael R. Harris, it's, uh, it's a joy talking with you about these complicated issues. And I have to say, it you must really enjoy your work. It seems so fascinating to me. And also, it must be rewarding to a great extent to, to be working almost as the Lorax in a way, you know, speaking for the, <laughs> the, those that don't have a voice in, the, in this context of human, you know, influence and culture and society. Well, at least to try to say and remind people that they're not the voice and they're not the deciders, that's for sure. And, and that animals have their own, you know, they should have their own abilities to live their lives. And these things are part of life. Conflict is part of life. All life, right? Yeah. And they, this is a conflict. And nature knows how to deal with conflict. And it's interesting because we're going to see another example of that with elephants in a second. But one thing I'll just say real quickly, the reason that Bart Owl is up back on our topic here is that now that this experiment is over, I've asked those at Fish and Wildlife Service, okay, what's next? Your experiment's over. Yay, it's a success in your view, in your eyes. Barred owls being removed and shot help spotted owls. What are you going to do now? 
Well, now we're going to do uh, a forever plan. I mean, what do you mean a forever? We're just going to start shooting barred owls forever. <laughs> Gosh. Okay? Just keep them in check. I mean, I said, you're going to try to remove them all? Well, we don't think we could remove them all. They're just too – we're talking about three states, British Columbia. I mean, it's just not possible. We're just going to shoot them, and we're just going to shoot them until – we, you know, to ever, and they use the word forever. Wow. And so I think that now that's, even if you could conceptualize a three-year experiment to see how it works out, now look what we've put ourselves in a position of doing. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's really, it really is. And it's astonishing. And, um, but that's the, that's the plan. I want, I was going to say solution, but that's not a solution. It just isn't. It sounds like the final solution. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, boy, you know, I mean, I, I, if they could find a way to gather them all up in one spot, it would be just uh, probably a terrible bloodbath. And, and you know, it's funny because this is the United States fish and wildlife service we're talking about, you know? Yeah. You wouldn't presume that on, on, on face value. Most people would probably think, well, they wouldn't, you know, their job is not to uh, harm animals, is to take care of them or, you know. But I guess that the spotted owl is who they're trying to take care of. Uh, the barred owl is, is, is not important to them. And you mentioned three states. That's, uh, I guess, Washington uh, and Oregon and uh, Northern California. And then, as you said, British Columbia up in Canada. Yeah, that's correct. And the British Columbia, that's it's it's a lost. I mean, the spotted owls, they're virtually extinct in there. And it's, it's all so there's no with the barred owls there, there, you know, there's no reason to even do anything about them, which, of course, barred owls in British Columbia are just going to end up becoming barred owls in Washington and Oregon. I mean, they're migratory. That's what they do. And if, if anybody listening wants to get more info, uh, do something about this situation, do you have any suggestions as where they can go and look to get more? Well, it's been extensively written about regarding the ethics of this entire thing. I mean, a Google search will show you numerous mainstream publications from Time to Newsweek to ethical journals. If you just want to know what's going on the ground, I mean, you could reach out to Friends of Animals, of course. And if you're really want to know what the Fish and Wildlife Service is up to, they have a barred owl threat page on their website. So Great, great. Well, thank you for that. Let's go to Mozambique. Yeah. Well, here you go. How does nature handle conflicts? I don't know if you've seen this in the news. This is not something I, I uh, invest any particular expertise in um, outside of, you know, we do at Friends of Animals work really hard to protect elephants from trophy hunting. I mean, that's where... We have litigated cases and attempted to change U.S. policy on importing the carcasses and quote-unquote trophy heads of and trophy body parts of African elephants that have been killed by hunters in the from America. You know, Americans going to Africa, killing these animals and trying to bring them back as trophies. So we have a lot of experience in pre preventing it, but. This news to me was just, you know, as amazing as it might have been to any of your your listeners who read it in the last two weeks. Because the one of the one of the reasons we want the elephants is their tusks, of course. And this goes back way, way before we were just doing trophies. We're talking about the use of ivory, of course, and the 
from the 1600s on, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, tickling the ivories on the piano or the ivory chess pieces or the ivory suitcase handles. Um, and of course, poaching of ivory continues to be a big deal for both um, use uh, for its uh, value and also for medicinal purposes and religious purposes. But in any way, it came out that elephants are evolving to not grow tusks. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, I am sure that if we could look into this and we could maybe find a lot of more Darwin-oriented reasons for this, like maybe there are already a certain sort of number of elephants in their DNA that are tuskless, and they may have been considered to be at a disadvantage in you know the wild hundreds of years ago because tusks are really important for digging, looking for water, looking for food, you know, for tearing down branches. I mean, they're tools. And it could very well be that there's always been a certain number of tuskless elephants and that they have been considered to be defective elephants, right? And from a nature standpoint. Mm -hmm. And maybe because those were not hunted, their DNA is more, you know, present in the in the gene pool and they're becoming more common. But it's also just sort of an amazing story that what we are doing to them and the reason is becoming naturally obsolete. And so there's that conflict, right, that we've created with them in the natural world. Look at, you, know, you could put on your scientific cap and say, Mike, it's all just about science. Or you can say, hey, you know, nature's amazing. And yeah, how it can adapt to outside influences, like you said, like our behavior, uh, the poaching, uh, I, I, again, literature that you directed me to uh, was uh, largely done in the in the recent past from the 80s to the early or 70s, late 70s, early 90s, because of a civil war in Mozambique, right? And I was reading that um, the, uh, it's a female uh, pachyderms main that mostly uh, would be tuskless. Uh, correct me, of course, I'm sure you will if I'm wrong. And um, or before this uh, new sort of development in, uh, with the tuskless uh, pachyderms, it used to be normally 2 to 4% wouldn't have tusks. Now it's up to a third, 33% uh, that are being born without tusks. So that's a huge increase, uh, you know, of tuskless in a short span of time, it would seem. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, um, I, I, I think that's what gets me the most, I think, is the timing of it, the, how quick it's occurred. And so and and it's interesting because it sort of parallels the, um, the timing for which these animals have probably been most threatened. Right. Right. And their extinction becomes most inevitable in the last few decades. And in fact, m most uh, most biologists will tell you that no, that there is a strong belief there will be no elephants in the wild uh, if all of the same pressures that are occurring right now to kill them uh, by the end of the this century. I mean that I, that is that was in Time Magazine uh, twenty years ago. That was said. I think it was. I would think it was at the. The uh, the first editions, like going from nineteen from the nineteen ninety nine to two thousand, there was these predictions on the natural world, and and elephants were unlikely to make it another hundred years. Wow. Yeah, fifty wow. was probably 
optimistic, frankly. And then at the same time, you have this rapid evolution. It's amazing to remove one of the biggest threats to them. Right. You, you want our tusks. That's why you kill us. We're not going to grow them anymore. Yeah, it's cool. It's great. I mean, we've been sawing them off <laughs> as a, you know, I mean, that's one of the, the, the tools that um, conservationists in Africa have been using to, to actually saw them off so that they wouldn't be killed for their tusks. And so they're like, well, we'll just do it ourselves. We'll just evolve. That's amazing. And and we're talking mainly on the continent of Africa. You'll find elephants. And I guess in Thailand, you'll find elephants. Um, I'm not sure where else on the planet, but I, well, I think Africa mainly. I didn't even realize Thailand. Uh, my ignorance is clear. Uh, but And there is an elephant from Thailand that you wanted, I think, unless you're not done with with this story, uh, this, this situation in, in Mozambique, uh, there's a case coming up with Happy the elephant. I believe Happy is from Thailand, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Asian elephants um, are the ones that we are most common commonly associate with like zoos and circuses. Um, Asian elephants are more docile. Um, they tend to uh, be uh, more submissive. I mean, they're still massive animals and can cause great damage. African elephants put into captivity tend to um, be jailbreakers. Like I'm going to do whatever I need to do to kill my captor and leave. Mm. Uh, Asian elephants have not. That's why there's, they've been highly coveted for, for uh, entertainment purposes. Uh, yeah, Happy the Elephant. Um, this is more close to, to, to home for you, I think, uh, um, was um, captured, I, I, I believe, and you might correct me, uh, it's been a, about a month and a half, but I believe it was in the late 1960s. Yeah, I remember something like that, or early 70s, something like that. Yeah, yeah with, a num with like four or five others, and they were initially – brought to do some traveling circuses and ended up in some zoo roadside zoos eventually happy made uh her way to the bronx zoo um in the early 1980s i believe and so she's been there a long time unfortunately when happy went there there were two or three other elephants who were there and they there was no there was no um, relationship that was formed. The, the others didn't did not accept her into the into their their group, and so she's been isolated pretty much for this entire time for all these decades. And the others have since passed anyway that were there when she arrived. So she's not only was isolated, but there you know not even any other um, elephants left at the Bronx Zoo except for her. And yeah, there's litigation, not by Friends of Animals, by a group called the uh, Non-Human Rights Project, seeking to get her emancipated um, through constitutional provisions that um, prevent wrongful imprisonment. Mm. Um, but in order to do that, she would have to be classified as a person. And so the current case is over her personhood, and it's before the the New York's um, Court of Appeals, their highest court. Uh, it's amazing they have they have accepted it to hear it. They found that there was merit to the arguments. Wow. Uh, one uh, one of the um, current justices on the court, Fahey, has previously opined that he would grant personhood to an elephant. However, Fahey is uh, termed out on December 31st. Mm -hmm. So there's no clear 
understanding of whether he'll participate or there's no hearing set so far. So, but yeah, it's really amazing that this is probably the, the, the first time we've had a high court like this grant a petition and said they're going to decide it. So it sounds favorable. I mean, why would they grant it if they were just going to go along with, you know, what has been the normal course of the lower courts to say, you know, we, we can't do this, you know, persons are persons and we don't have any, precedent set to to extend it to like a chimpanzee or an elephant so it's pretty exciting it's been all in the news i mean again time magazine and all of the major networks have been discussing it and um i'm excited so i i was participated in writing a amicus brief on behalf of the philosopher and um animal rights um um, advocate Martha C. Nussbaum, who's the who's at University of Chicago, she supported the philosophical reasons for granting a an autonomous, living, sentient being like an elephant uh, the right to be able to be a person and be free from captivity and be able to go to a uh, and there is a place a sanctuary in Tennessee where she could live in a vast open area with other elephants of her kind and and be free well that, that's a, that's pretty impressive and it's it is exciting this uh possibility even if nothing if it doesn't uh the personhood is not granted still that it, there's even being a hearing on on the notion is is big and i'm very impressed that you're representing on behalf you know of of uh professor nussbaum writing an amicus brief because she's a rock star uh, yes, yeah, she, <laughs> she is. So, my compliments to you. And she has a book coming out um, next year. Uh, I know it's written and it's with their publisher, and I even saw the cover. Um, and uh, it's all on rights of animals. So, she has um, talked about it. She has written about it in short format. She has made uh, arguments for animal rights using her own theories of. Um, that deal with human justice, extending them, but she's got a book coming out. And I'm really, I think that's exciting to have someone of her stature to like, and to invest such um, energy into it. And I know it's going to be compelling. Yeah. I, I can't wait. And I, you know, obviously we're going to have another conversation in the near future. And when we do, I'm I'm uh, I'm thinking we'll talk about what it, what occurs uh, at uh, Happy's Happy the Elephant's trial, and maybe uh, Professor Nussbaum's book will be out too, and and we can discuss that. But uh, always a delight to talk with you, Michael. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And uh, uh, what are you going to you know uh, eat uh, for for the holidays or for, for Thanksgiving? You're going to have turkey or. You know what? It's funny you mentioned uh, your 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 previous guest. Uh, I'm assuming is a, a Native American representative. Yeah, little bear. Yeah. Uh, you know what? We've always avoided Thanksgiving for the most part. Um, if we find it an ideal time to travel internationally, there's no Americans abroad. It's pretty <laughs> fantastic. Um, but you know, this year with COVID and with our son, uh, no, we'll just uh, stay home and um, and enjoy the free time. And we don't really worry about it making it a food related event. Um, it doesn't really make much sense. Um, so, you know, we'll just, uh, we'll just slide in towards, uh, you know, towards the holiday season where we get to be together. Excellent. That's what it's all about, really. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, have a wonderful time with the family. And uh, again, thank you for spending some time with us here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, Michael R. Harris. You too. You have a fantastic rest of the day. Thanks. Bye. Bye. excerpt from an article published in the September 6th, 2021 edition of The New Yorker magazine, written by Dana Goodyear, called Grub, Eating Bugs to Save the Planet. An excerpt. Florence Dunkel, an entomologist at Montana State University, lives in a red salt box house at the edge of the woods outside Bozeman with her husband, Bob, whose nickname for her is Ladybug, and, until recently, with Gertrude, a fine 
limbed, grass-green kitty did she rescued from an airplane. The walls of her kitchen are covered with pictures of her eight grandchildren who call her Oma, or in the case of one grandson, the beetle Oma. In a bay window overlooking a vegetable garden, dried flowers hang next to a stained glass dragonfly. One freezing night at the end of February, Dunkel, who was petite with fluffy gray curls and rosebud lips, was puttering around her kitchen, a large pair of glasses suspended from a sparkly chain around her neck and an apron tied at her waist. She pulled out her old Betty Crocker recipe binder. She has had it since 1962 and put on her glasses. She opened it to a page, yellow with use, for chocolate chip Toll House cookies. Like many cooks, Dunkel likes to make a recipe her own. Betty Crocker called for half a cup of chopped walnuts. In the margin, in a loopy hand, the penmanship of a girl who grew up on a farm in Wisconsin in the 1950s, Dunkel had suggested a substitution, quote, or fresh roasted crickets. The crickets were presenting something of a problem. Her usual supplier in California had run out of large ones and instead had sent her a thousand live pinheads, in other words, babies, which she had to supplement with 125 expensive sub-adults from PetSmart. Before checking her recipe, Dunkel had picked up a pinhead. I've never used these for food, she said, kneading it between her index finger and thumb a chef inspecting an unfamiliar piece of meat. I'm not even sure I'll take the head off. She decided to put the pinheads in the freezer to kill them. Another of her nicknames, inspired by her work as an insect pathologist, is Dr. Death, and set the oven to 225 degrees for the pet smart sub-adults. Meanwhile, we need to get the wax worms separated, she said. They were for, quote, land shrimp cocktail, which Dunkel would serve to her insects and human society class the next day, accompanied by cocktail sauce made by Bob using horseradish from their garden. They're going to want to wander as they get warm, she said. She then opened a plastic container secured with red tape that read Worms Alive and dumped the worms, the larvae of the wax moth, which were plump and white and had come from a bait shop in Minnesota, onto a brown plate. They were covered in cedar shavings. My job was to separate the worms from the shavings, picking out the black ones. Blackness is a sign of necrosis and dismantling the cocoons of the ones that had started to pupate, while making sure none got away. The worms were chubby and firm, with the springiness of clementine segments. They swayed deliriously, testing the air. I got to work sorting, desilking, hurting. Oh, I can smell the crickets now, Dunkel said, as the aroma of toasted nuts filled the kitchen. She took them out of the oven and started to pull off their ovipositors and the legs, 
which can get stuck in the throat. When I finished with the wax worms, she said, the next species we're going to deal with is the Tenembrio molitor, which is a beetle. We're going to wash them, and then we're going to fry them in butter. French Farm Rain when there used to be snow Hello, climate change Where will we go? Green leaves instead of yellow, brown, beige, and red I remember years ago Picking plums and grapes with a beautiful young French woman Named Fred Brown, thick hair in a perpetual tussle her light blue eyes looking at me with rugged innocence in the morning fog when we would drink coffee together on the farm. 
I never kissed those soft, cracked lips beneath a crooked nose, nor touched her shoulders or the small of her back, right above her smooth, soft buttocks crack, leading to who knows where. Episode 446 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our good friend Michael R. Harris, The New Yorker Magazine, and writer Dana Goodyear, as well as these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, 
The Pretenders, Courtney Barnett, Silver Synthetic, X, Joy Division, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's do our best with this time. Take care.